Hi everyone, this is Lishan, and this is not a regular episode of Fusapod. You may have noticed already that we've been on a bit of a hiatus, and I'm just making this quick recording to make it official. So we are taking a break from Fusapod while I focus on a new podcast, a brand new podcast called Design Future Now. I am working with AIGA. AIGA is the oldest and largest professional association for design here in the US, founded way back in 1914. And so Design Future Now, the new podcast, you can find it on Spotify, on Apple, on Google Podcasts, wherever you find podcasts. And it's really about the changing face of the design profession. If we look at the labor statistics, we see both a design boom and a design bust in terms of traditional graphic design jobs going away, lots of new design jobs in technology, healthcare, other growth sectors. So what can we do as designers to really understand these new opportunities and to really change our careers and our very identities as designers to really explore these new boundaries of design wherever they are. And so since you're already tuning in now, I thought I would play the latest episode of Design Future Now. It's an interview that I did with Jack Roberts, who is a designer, but also a storyteller, filmmaker, actor, author, all sorts of cool things. He is a former student of mine over at Parsons and also now teaches at Parsons. I hope you like it. Please subscribe. Design Future Now. How is design changing as a discipline and profession? And how do we face these challenges and opportunities as a community? We explore these questions and more on Design Future Now from AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. I'm Li Shan Huang. In this episode, we talk cowboys, Indians, assumptions, tension, and more with our guest, designer, filmmaker, and author, Jack Roberts. Hi, Jack. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You wrote a recent book called Echo Designs Her Way Out of a Paper Bag. And in the book, you share an anecdote from your childhood and you describe yourself as a little bit cowboy, a little bit Indian. Can you tell us more about that in terms of your identity as a person and as a professional and how these meld together? Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I am a little bit cowboy and a little bit Indian. I'm I'm both Cherokee, Native American, and also grew up in the Wild West of Oklahoma, uh, a place not many people venture out of to places like New York or Los Angeles or Paris, where I spend most of my time. So I find that growing up in the land of what I would call the land of stories, 111 tribes pushed into an Indian territory, you grew up with nothing but myth. And so finding a way to kind of kind of assemble that into a worldview was quite a unique opportunity. So let's talk about stories and myth, because your book, Echo Designs Her Way Out of a Paper Bag, it's a mix of a business book. There's fiction, there's nonfiction, there is storytelling. You weave all of these things together in a pretty seamless, interesting way, but it definitely breaks some of these rules and boundaries of typical business writing. So why... Why do we need to mix fact and myth and 
design thinking and storytelling? That's a great question. I think ultimately the illusion is that we're not mixing them already. Our facts are only facts until we disprove them, which happens constantly, especially if you live in that sort of design thinking iterative mindset where you're constantly challenging assumption. And I think that's what I wanted to do with business books in general. I feel like they purpose to deliver a lot of value, and that's really their proposition to the world. But so much of value isn't just in what we say, but it's really in how we say it. And I don't find business books particularly creative in the how they say it. And so I I really approached it in a way of how might I really share something unique and generative and valuable for people in business and design in everyday life that has the same kind of truth a business book would, but is also delivered in a way that's entertaining. Because honestly, we as authors are no longer competing with other books or other business voices. Even we're competing with scrolling Netflix for 45 minutes to decide what we're going to watch. Can you give us some of these story beats in your own professional life? Like how, how design weaves into all of these things, how you came to design, how you are integrating design and storytelling in what you do. Absolutely. Uh, Design for me is a way of being, I would almost characterize it as a religion in that way. I I think that the idea of religion is it's an organization of beliefs that guide the principles of how we approach the world. And for me, design has has a little bit always been that. Uh, How can I design the best story to tell in the moment? And I've really always approached storytelling from a design perspective. Growing up in the Cherokee Nation, the way that I did, moving around as much as I did and reinventing myself constantly... I started to notice these patterns and, and really to me, design is ultimately about finding the insights of patterning and clustering and pulling those out and weaving them together into something that's meaningful. It's really about meaning making and storytelling is essentially the same thing. It's the vehicle that allows us to make meaning um, because it connects with us on a human level. And design is really moving in the last several decades towards a very human-centered approach. And so I found these two to, to fit rather seamlessly for me. In regards to how I came upon design, it was in constantly moving as a child. I think I was in 37 different houses by the time I was 18. And every time my mother would want to reinvent the house, and so we would redecorate. And every time she got stressed, she'd rearrange things. And I think I picked that up. And so I found myself designing for stress relief. And ultimately, you know, I have a queue of over 100 websites I've designed that I'll never do anything with simply because it's my stress relief. And I think that the stories that I tell ultimately have a real uh, design through line. So you tell the story in your book, there's this theme of not your first rodeo. And it sounds like you've had multiple rodeos of just moving house as well and redesigning those experiences and those spaces for comfort and de-stress. How do you encourage this idea of mastery? Maybe folks who didn't grow up with the same environment of having to redesign their situation all the time and building creative confidence as designers, as storytellers. How can people do that? That's a wonderful question. How can people practice the principles of constant change is really what you're asking in a way. And I think we're in constant change. And the first thing we have to address is the fact that we're usually terrified of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so I, I think so ultimately encountering that with that creative confidence is the thing to do, but it's that strange sort of double-edged sword because when you practice creative confidence, you may not have creative confidence quite yet. And so you almost have to practice in order to gain creative confidence, but you need the creative confidence to even start to practice. And I find that the way anyone can start is simply by acknowledging something they want to change. And I would encourage anyone to look at the millions of resources that are out there at this point, maybe not millions, but certainly tens of thousands of methodologies around design and redesign and what those processes are, the processes of design thinking. My book talks about one of them called narrative design, which is sort of a fusion of design thinking and storytelling principles. And so the idea is that the you have these processes that you can take any situation through and change it. You can redesign it. And I think ultimately it goes back to what we talked about a moment ago in the space of assumption. I think many of us make assumptions that that's something someone else does, or they've had a lot of practice at it, or they're ultimately more gifted than I am. And that's just simply not true. I think on some level, we're unwilling to see the life we're living as immediately transferable to the life we'd love to live. So in some ways, it sounds like you're defining design in your experience of having to redecorate or redesign your living space because of all of these moves. It's almost a way of reclaiming your story, right? In terms of your identity of who you are and having to constantly redesign who you are, whether it was growing up in the environment that you did, but also more recently as a professional having just completed this master's program here at, at Parsons. Now you're teaching at Parsons. So can you tell me more about this idea of like reclaiming your story and identity is almost kind of designing yourself, right? Yes, it is. It's absolutely designing yourself. And I think that's very astute. In fact, I'm having a realization in this moment because of your question that I likely pursued acting for so long because of the reinvention of self. And when you design a character, you, you implement actual design. You use user research, you study your characters, you come with character breakdowns, which are context, and then you begin to build out a persona and create an entire sort of user journey. So, so many of these tools that we use in design and design thinking are actually being used elsewhere too. We just call them different things. And I think that's the thing that's really been uh, surprising to me, is that all of my worlds have sort of converged in this space of design thinking. And so many of the things I had already been doing in film and television, writing and acting and even novels, all of these things required the same process. And that process is essentially the reinvention of yourself. And I know that that sounds a bit esoteric and it sounds a little bit, you know, psychology driven, but a little self-helpy, a little self-helpy. Yes, absolutely. But if we can't design our own lives, what are we doing here? Ultimately, Everything you're trying to accomplish through your design principles is something that benefits or affects your life. Why not go straight to the root and change who you are and actually become the thing and the person that achieves the thing you want to see happen? So for folks who see design, maybe, or their background in design is different, maybe it's more focused on the visual or the artifact, something that's more tangible and maybe less self-reflexive in that way, it could be a little bit uncomfortable to think about design and the self-helpy kind of way. Do you have any advice for folks like that who come from a traditional design background and getting them more confident or just convincing them that design is also this bigger thing about reclaiming your story and designing yourself? Absolutely. I think ultimately 
I, I would say that the designs that they already know, the way they design, their way of being, so to speak, as a designer, that they already use day to day to create those artifacts, to create products, to create services. All of these things hold the same keys that it would take to shift their life in any direction they wanted to take it. I think the thing that was fascinating to me was this idea of sort of reframing or redesigning your story. Because fundamentally, a story is essentially a collection of beliefs that we've aligned ourselves with. Somehow this is true. And if you think about story in the bigger sense and you take away this sort of pedantic use of storytelling as marketing or branding, uh, and you think about it as sort of a little more ancient, something we've always done to kind of bring each other together around a fire or in a time of crisis or trouble, you know, the stories are the things that can unite us. They're also the things that divide us. So in my opinion, designers have a really unique position because they understand the how of something. And we're in an age of information, which has fallen out of the Industrial Revolution, which was really an age of what, what we're about, what we're doing, expansion, growth. And then we move into this space of information. And it's, it's exponential. Each day, we're getting barraged with so much information, and we don't know how to make sense of it. Ultimately, designers, though, have the unique ability of how they understand a thing. They have ways and methods to understand a thing and to make sense of it. We're poised in this place, if we choose to be, to actually lead things to unity rather than division through design and through design methodologies. What we're essentially afraid of, I think, is our own power. That's what I would say. That's really interesting. You've said so many interesting things that I'd love to pick on multiple threads right now. The power one is something I'd love to come back to, as well as the use of fiction and myth and go deeper there. But first, I just want to reflect a little bit on this idea of shared story and identity among designers, because I think one of the, I don't want to say crisis, that sounds too alarmist, but one of the issues facing design as a profession right now, I think comes from this breakdown of the shared story because there's no longer one dominant story of shared struggle, right? If you think about design from a few decades ago, people were coming into the field in fairly homogeneous ways in terms of you starting out as an apprentice or you going to an art school, design school, working your way up to art director, creative director. Maybe you get a say in terms of strategy and management. And nowadays there's folks coming into design through these hybrid programs like ours at Parsons in strategic design and management. You have folks with MBAs who are calling themselves designers and that sort of shared identity and that shared struggle is going away. Do you have any thoughts about that in terms of just designer's identity? Because it's both a field that's more open than ever before, but also because of that openness is fragmented in terms of the stories that we tell and the shared identities that we might have. You bet. I think we are in a and you use the word crisis, and I would say it's an identity crisis. I also don't want to sound alarmist, but we are in an identity crisis. We're in a space where websites can be built in, you know, an hour by a teenager who has zero practice and zero design education. That person will see themselves as a designer. That will be their narrative. They may create logos or graphics for their friends. They may have an app that allows them to change a sneaker that they love. And I see this in my students at Parsons as well. They come in already seeing themselves as designers to a design school. So 
it's really an identity crisis in a lot of ways. We had this shared, this shared struggle, this shared identity of designers against the world, so to speak, and struggling for their say at the table and really working very hard for it. But it's not that different than so many other social movements in a lot of ways. And we find ourselves at this crossroads in a lot of areas. I think in each of those struggles, I see a pattern myself and I see an inability of the generation that's come before to lead and not an inability, but really an unwillingness. And it's sad to me because they hold the keys and the knowledge to actually bring people into the fold. You mentioned the concept of apprenticeship earlier. And I wonder sometimes if the generations that came before us, rather than struggling to hang on to their power and their influence and trying to not change in the face of this overwhelming uh, change that's afoot, what if they decided to get on top of the wave and actually lead it? What if they decided to open the doors and say, yes, come on in, be a designer. Let me show you how that's done. Yeah, it's interesting because part of this decline of the apprenticeship system perhaps also comes from the boom in design jobs, right? Especially in the tech industry where there's just so many designers that need to be hired that we now have, you know, the general assemblies of the world, these kind of boot camps that have the promise of turning somebody into a designer or a technologist in, in 12 weeks or 14 weeks, whatever that is, right? And how that changes this shared narrative, which is different from folks who were working away, kind of doing the slog at an apprenticeship for three, four or five years before they were allowed to really have more agency. And for me, I got into design through art school, right? I studied at NYU in an art and technology program that was really working with digital media, emergent media, and then design is one of the ways to pay off your NYU loans. And so for me, it was kind of from there. But now we also have this narrative around trying to divorce design from art and, and just aesthetics, right? And thinking about design as problem solving. Yeah. And that creates another crisis because plenty of other people can solve problems, right? Like engineers are problem solvers, managers are problem solvers. Like it doesn't make designers special per se. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that? I do. Uh, I think it's a great thread and an interesting set of questions. I will say that one of the most fascinating movements to me came through a body of research over the last 30 years and is epitomized in a book called The Design Way. In it, it's posited essentially that at the advent of Western civilization, we had, we had this division of knowledge. And one was the arts and humanities. The other was science and math. And engineering would have fallen into that category. The third that they didn't quite know how to quantify was this thing that bled into sort of every area. And it was, it was sort of design. You think about ancient philosophers and mathematicians and artists and these people who didn't quite fit into everything. You think of Pythagoras, the Da Vinci's of the world, these people who were prolific in so many different mediums and so many different ways. And that's because they understood the how of a thing and they were ability, their ability to transfer that knowledge through mediums was nothing short of staggering. And I would ask, I, I would ask this question to your question in some ways, where is that gone? And where is that ability to, I, I would say, design anything with the same sort of methodology and abilities that designed one thing, moving into another industry and innovating there as well. I don't see a lot of that happening. And in fact, in some ways, it, it, we're on an uptick of that move. And I would say we're headed towards a renaissance in some ways, personally. Um, but it's going to take the designer to leave 
the smithy and to stop seeing themselves as a craftsman alone. That's what I mean by that leadership space that we're, we're sort of unwilling to take ownership of our own abilities and we, we use it. And some of the best designers in the world have done products for both Apple and also made dishwashers. You know, how does one person solve problems in all of those spaces? Well, there's clearly some kind of thinking behind it. And so now we have the emergence of design thinking. But the story we're telling about it, I think, is a little bit disjointed and a little bit miserable. So was there a moment for you in your own life and career where you had this realization that you were more than just a craftsman and artisan and you were a leader and, and to use your own phrase, you were able to step into your own power? Yes, I think ultimately it came through feature film and producing, writing, and acting in a feature film that I made. And the film did very, very well. Played 21 festivals around the world and won 11 of them. Was picked up by Warner Brothers, went on to a limited theatrical release, et cetera, et cetera. What was unique about that is I had the opportunity to move from artist to designer. Because when I started that project, and before I sat across from investors to raise money and ask for, you know, millions of dollars from people, I went in with these artistic sensibilities. The story has to be this. It's going to feel like this. And it has to express these things. And that's really what my art is about. And it's going to be like these projects, but better. And then you look across from someone who cares nothing about any of those things. And they're holding the key in their checkbook to your dreams. Right. And how will it focus group, right? And how will it focus group? And who's your target audience? And I'm like, the people who love my art. And, and they're like, yes. And beyond your self-expression, how will I make my money back? And I'm like, that's just it. My self-expression will make your money back. And they don't believe you. So it changes your mindset slowly. And you have to go, okay, well, who is my user? What is their journey? They have... A hundred films a day they could choose from. Why mine? What's differentiated? What's the story I'm telling about the story? Let's say I make the film, but now how am I going to take it to market? What's the story about the story? How do I design all of this to create an experience for my user that actually makes them say, I love this film, everything about this film. And so then I both get to express what I want to do and they get what they want. I think there's a quote by Jim Rohn, who I think is interesting because he was one of these early sort of self-help motivator guys in the 60s and 70s. And he said, give enough people what they want and you'll get what you want. And I think in many ways, that's how design is differentiated from art. In art, we come into this wanting to be creative and we come in wanting to express our craft. And I think in, in some ways, the designers of the past that's what we have to let go of. And we have to realize that we are and have always been in our profession has often been used at and has been most successful when we take our creativity and we use it in service of others. And I would say that for me, that differentiation happened and that shift happened uh, with that first film project. When we think about design as creating these experiences, serving others, there's a need for power, however you define it, right? And, and film, just by the nature of the medium, requires a lot of money. It requires a lot of teamwork. And I think we go back and forth about the filmmaker or the designer as auteur, right? Of, you know, if we think about Johnny Ive and his tenure at Apple and the kind of auteur of all of those design choices that resulted in all those Apple products, 
how do we think about individual and collective power to go back to this theme of power, right? Thinking about both advocating for our users, right? The people, our customers, the people that we're serving, but also advocating for ourselves in terms of that power and grappling with this whole tension of the auteur and the sort of great man. And it's traditionally, it's often been a man, unfortunately, right? Uh, And this whole narrative around the creative and the creative genius versus this collective power that we need to deal with some of these problems that we're addressing. In some ways, I think the myth of the creative genius is necessary to get those of us with the biggest ideas going. I don't think it's sustainable. And I think history proves that point. When you watch the mad scientist at work, if they never drop the mad science, they end up decimating themselves at some point along the way. I think it's a stage of growth in some ways to those of us that want to do big things. You have to have a big enough ego to try something ridiculous. Just enough creative confidence, perhaps even unfounded, to try something really unique and original in the world. Because it's a vulnerable thing. It's a very vulnerable thing to share your big ideas and your big hopes and dreams out there, either in a story or on a screen or in a design or in a product. It's about the biggest thing I think we can do. You're naked on display in front of everyone. And that myth, though, that myth of the creative genius, I think is a myth. Because ultimately, all of those successes that came from those individuals came because of their exchange with their audience or their users. So I I think about uh, the quote that's attributed to Henry Ford, whether he ever said it or not. uh, I hope whoever gets credit for it someday, probably some woman back there and who was uncredited said that if I'd given people what they wanted, I would have found a way to create a faster horse. And instead he created the automobile. And despite even his friend Tom Edison at the time telling him it was a bad idea. And so uh, granted Edison had on his shelf an electrical engine he was working on as opposed to the combustible. So he had plans that Henry was just a little faster to get to. And what a different world that would have been. Nothing but electric cars from the beginning. But I think about things like that. And so there is this sort of acknowledgement of this is what people want. And what he did is he did the hard work to see through that and challenge those assumptions and say, what you're really wanting is to get from one place to another faster. Well, how can I create that for you? And then he started to really brainstorm those spaces. And out of that came the the tractor and then the truck and then the car and then the assembly line. And that's led to specialization, which has created the technological boom we're in now in the age of information. And now we're in the age of how, where designers have a very unique opportunity to use that same kind of exchange and ability to see through what people say they want and give them what they have no idea can exist because of our own creative power. I think that is an interesting tension that's inherent then in the power, right? Because as you say, you kind of have to be somebody with a huge ego to think that you can do something that will change the world. And that is that is inherently part of the creative confidence part. But then there's also, to use another buzzword, the servant leadership part, where you are doing it to benefit or to add value to the people who are using your products and your services. And, and there's always that tension there between the I am the, the designer versus I am serving uh, my users or my community. Grappling with that tension, have you thought about what 
success as a designer, as a creative professional looks like to you? Because in many measures, you already have achieved a lot of success in terms of having a book, having put out films and, and shows and things like that. So in the broad sense, what does that success look like? I think it looks like, to quote Thomas Edison a lot, like hard work and overalls. And I think ultimately a lot of continuous improvement. And in some ways, maybe you do have to have a really large ego to say, I can never be done growing, you know, because maybe you really have like hit a stalemate at some point. I don't know. Ultimately, though, I think success for me looks a lot like continuing to explore the world and continuing to, to hold those things in tension between what people think they want and what creativity can give them and to assemble teams of people to continue to do those things. You use the word tension, and I think it's, it's really an apt description of how I would define truth. I think truth itself is a constant tension of all the things I am and all the things I'm not, because I'm both of those things. I'm both a person who lacks the ability um, to, I, I particularly have a, a weakness for gluten-free donuts, Right. So I have the inability to, to cut sugar out completely because every time I randomly run into the very few places there's a gluten free donut, I am going to have one. Sour Patch Kids on long flights, it's the same thing. I will always take Sour Patch Kids on flights despite my affinity for natural health in every other area of my life. And I think those kinds of weird little tensions or eccentricities that we all have are the tensions that make us who we are. I saw a brilliant Heineken ad years ago where they brought a lot of people in blind. They used user experience in a really fascinating way. And they brought these people in blind with people they knew that they previously had interviewed to disagree with on specific topics. For instance, they brought um, sort of a middle American man who was uh, homophobic and anti-gay and a veteran in to build a bar with a woman who is uh, gay, part of the gay rights movement, and also in the army. And so they brought her in and him in, and they built this bar together, and they didn't tell either of them anything about each other. And the ad had me in tears by the end of it, because by the end of it, they're challenging their assumptions in the most basic and beautiful way possible, because they've made each other human-centered. They're really only trying to connect with the person across from them. And then they share a beer together. And then they interviewed them afterwards and said, did your assumptions change? And both of them had completely changed. In addition to being just a, a fantastic story in terms of storytelling for advertising, I think it's a great ad for the power of design as well, yes. right? So even though they had the instructions on how to build the bar, I think there's something, there's a theory of change there that's like, if... We can get more people, diverse people, designing stuff or building stuff together in a concrete way. Maybe that's a, a social movement as well, because more and more of our economy feels more and more abstracted and, and removed from the everyday. Right? And it's not, not necessarily about going back to an industrial economy, but just getting people to design stuff and make stuff. Stuff also including experiences and things that are more experiential or, or service-based as well. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. And I think it's a great observation. And I, I concur with you that it is absolutely the power of design at work. I would go back to the idea of the, the power the designer actually holds in the ability to design experience. 
if we allow our craftsman mentality to, to morph and iterate into something that is a bit broader and a bit more leadership oriented and a little more, let's help guide these kinds of interaction experiences. We understand human behavior in a way that very few professions do. We study it through ethnography. We're actively inside design research and we're in a phenomenology that most people don't even, well, most people don't even know what phenomenology is. Can you unpack phenomenology yeah. <laughs> for our listeners? Yeah, you bet. Phenomenology means the study of human experience. It, you know, goes back to uh, some movements in Germany in the 1800s. People are very scared of anything that was happening in Germany uh, that led to some really heinous uses of design inside camps and these, these kinds of atrocities. However, we also have within phenomenology, the study of human experience. If, if we just take it for what it is, the power of observation of actual hypothesis in observation, educated guesses, we go in and we observe because there's a huge disconnect between what people say they do versus what they actually do. There's a fun exercise. If you just take a moment of brushing your teeth and you write down everything you do when you brush your teeth. And then later that night, you record yourself brushing your teeth. I think that most people would actually find, and most people that have done this exercise that I've encountered do actually find that they're liars. They don't know what they do when they brush their teeth. And they think they do it for a lot longer than they do as well. You know, and so dentists all say to brush your teeth for two minutes minimum between two and four minutes is, is ideal. And even the people who say they would do that have clocked themselves at about 27 seconds. And so that's, that's very, very far from two minutes. And, and my point is, when we study people in their natural habitat and we observe their experience, as designers, we're able to pull out these kinds of insights and create personas and then create journeys, which ultimately are stories that allow us to guide and shape future experiences like this Heineken ad, for example. That was something that was created through observing people, through ethnography, through visual ethnography, the power of documentary, which is essentially a visual ethnography. And then that documentary and the information and insights from that was created to pair two people together that are in tension from the beginning. And if we get them back to the place, how might we get them to a place of understanding? And that whole ad could have been structured around that one how might we statement. I think this is another point where we can draw a parallel between the how might we statements of the design thinking process and storytelling as well. You pointed out earlier that I use this word tension and you've also been using the word assumptions. I'm trying to weave them all together to make sense of them. I started using this word tension to d describe the setup for stories. I borrowed it from my friend Gary Jaffe, who's a filmmaker. He came to speak about storytelling to one of my classes. And prior to his guest lecture, I had always talked about the essence of story being conflict, but conflict in a broad sense, right? Not just like Michael Bay action movie conflict, but also internal conflict. But I think it, it was kind of throwing a lot of people off and Gary started using, he introduced me to using the word tension, and that could be a dramatic tension. It could be, you know, the sexual tension of characters in a rom-com. And I think for designers, it's navigating that tension between the ego, right, and wanting to change the world and the service-oriented dynamic. And then also this tension between knowing what we think is best for people and these assumptions and the empirical aspect of what we do, of like actually 
recording, documenting, and measuring what actually happens. So yeah, that's how I think about tension and assumptions. And back to this parallel between design thinking and storytelling, in a story, you kind of set up the scenario, like what happens when the alien ship shows up to Earth? In some ways, it's a question. And the story that unfolds is an answer to that question, just as the how might we is a question that kind of winds up the tension that allows the design process to move forward. Yeah, I think it's an astute observation. There is certainly a parallel. I think that tension is sort of inherently what drives both uh, and probably most industries, right? An entrepreneur is often defined as someone who wants to solve a problem through the capital system. A social entrepreneur is someone who wants to solve a problem in society. And ultimately, those problems are tensions, right? That would be another way to say them. And so in storytelling specifically, there is the old adage that if you don't have conflict, you don't have a story. However, there's always conflict if you're willing to dig at all. It's always there. And I think the same is true we find in design research. There is always an assumption we're making that's not true. How much of what we believe to be true actually is true. And if, if you start from that premise and you're willing to go in there and, and challenge each place that you're starting to create from, that I find is the most powerful place and most resonant voice you can tell a story with. And from a parallel perspective, uh, as a designer, it's also the place I've found you can design the greatest products, the greatest uh, solutions, and ultimately even just the, the greatest ideas from. We have identified these tensions, but we also have to just live them. And that's just an inherent part of being a designer, being a storyteller. So we're coming upon the end of our time together. So just kind of end with a, a lightning round of two combined questions of, I guess, death, death and life. So the first one is slay. And then the second one is what's giving you life. What are some myths, misconceptions out there, accepted knowledge that you, you want to slay or um, dispel? And then what's giving you life in terms of inspiration of works of art or design or other things that inspire you right now? Sure. The first part of that, something I want to slay is our allegiance to the concept of truth. Back to this idea of tension, I think the tension is the truth. And we need to process that as designers. Yes, yes, the craftsmen who have studied under a goldsmith for three years are a designer of jewelry. Yes, absolutely. But so is the MBA who went to Stanford's D school to learn how to see the world differently. We've got to both hold on to what we love and allow for the world to change at the same time. So that's the thing that I would like to slay right now is the sort of the blockages that keep that from being the reality. Right. So if folks are being accepted as designers by business or they're self-identifying as designers, just kind of let them have that too, right? There's a big enough tent for that. I, I think it's up to us to design the tent. So yes, I think there is a big enough tent for it if we choose for there to be. But I'd also like to, to slay our allergy to leadership because I think ultimately we've left it to the CEOs and the CFOs and all the other Cs for so long. And we see a move. There are only 18 as of right now. I think there's a new 19th CDOs in the world, chief design officers at large organizations of 50,000 or more employees. And I think we'll start to see that move more and more and more as we start to get over our allergy to leadership. We realize that we can actually design the entire organization. The skill set we have is poised to remake society if we choose to.
So back to ambition then. <laughs> Finally, what is giving you life in terms of creative inspiration right now? What is giving me life in terms of creative inspiration right now is this strange synthesis at the crossroads of the myths we tell ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves that we believe to be true, that influence and change our lives and ultimately create our decision matrices. We make our decisions every day from these stories we tell ourselves. And what happens at that crossroads when we start to infuse it with design thinking and when we start to actively realize that we're empowered and we actually have this ability to move through a process that's measurable that can change everything in our current reality. And the moment, you know, I go back to what Gandhi said of, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. And what would happen if we actually had the tools and the ability and the creative wherewithal as well as the confidence to change ourselves, we'd approach every conversation a little bit differently. We come to it from a place of security rather than a place of defense. And, and I think that ultimately is the thing I'm most inspired by right now is I'm starting to see that more and more and more out there. And I think as those communities start to come together, we're going to find ourselves not just problem solving or seeing design as a problem solution cycle, but rather for what it really is which is the ability to remake reality. Jack, it was good to see you again. Thanks for coming on the show. Check out Jack's book, Echo Designs Her Way Out of a Paper Bag. Available wherever books are sold. And thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Design Future Now, a production of AIGA, the Professional Association for Design. Learn more about our design conference at designconference.aiga.org. Until next time, I'm Li Shan Huang.